So this morning we are going to um, start with a, a little survey, a um, little interactive element here. Um, because it's Thanksgiving this week, I hope you're aware of that. I hope that's not news. If it is news, you need to start scrambling uh, quickly. But I'm just curious, uh, raise your hand if you are going to be hosting. It, whether it's one person, five people, 10 people, 15, who's going to be hosting? Raise your hands up so we can see. All right, so a lot of us. I, we're hosting, and our, my, my in-laws from Wales just arrived. Uh, it's always fascinating when you get to celebrate Thanksgiving with more British people than uh, Americans. And um, <laughs> it's like a whole thing. So um, if you're bored and want to come by the Daniels house, we will offer all kinds of amusement of our, our interpretation of actually don't do that. We're not prepared to host all of you. So um, yeah, yeah, strike that uh, completely. <laughs> For those of you who are hosting, we're going to go a little Martha Stewart for a second here, okay? Uh, we're going to talk about how we prepare to host, how we prepare for Thanksgiving. Um, and so we're going to offer some suggestions here. If you have uh, some hosting you're going to do, you want to offer some suggestions, what do you do to prepare to have people in your home, right? So what, what, are, what are some suggestions? What are things you do? Clean. Okay, clean. Absolutely. <laughs> you need to clean. Uh, if you guys want to take notes from the sermon, you can write some of this down. Um, someone said at the 815 service, I do whatever my wife says. Um, that's a good one too. You want to write that down. Uh, how, so cleaning is part of the prayer. What else do you do? What's that? Lots of lists. What kind of things do you make lists of? Wait, maybe one thing. Groceries, because you got to know what people like, right? The dishes you're going to make. Absolutely. You got somebody who's like gluten free in the middle of it, and then you got to figure that out and uh, everything else, because, you know. Now, all this, maybe one other thing. What else do you do? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you kind of start making a list. Thank you for taking the more spiritual route to this. I appreciate it. Uh, what are you actually thankful for? Get it the meaning of it. Yes. Order it all and have more time. Order it all. There you go. Order it all so you have more time. Uh, absolutely. So it works. Now, there's a lot of work. Less ordering, being thankful, all this kind of stuff. Now, here's the other question. This is the second one. This is the point. Why do you do the work of preparing? Why not just sit there when people show up and be like, I don't know, there might be, you know, food in the fridge. You can go see, right? Why, why kind of make the list? Why do the ordering? Why do this stuff? Why do the preparation? Why do you do it? Gratitude. What's that? Gratitude. Gratitude. Okay. Grateful for what? All right, so everything at the family table, there's a sense of gratitude. Why else do you do it? What do you want people to know? Yeah. What's that? Oh, you do? Okay, you're grateful because he says so. Perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. Tradition. Perfect. To love them well. Love. All right. I want you to hold on to this. Okay, because all of this is good. You can write this down. Maybe you got some, some, some lists you're starting to make right now for Thanksgiving. But part of why we prepare, part of why we just don't sit there is this act of love, as two people said, right? It's this idea that when people show up, you want them to know that you've prepared, you've made lists, because, because their being there matters. You want them to know that they belong, that they're included that it is important to you that they're there, that they have a place in the gathering. Your preparation shows the worth that they have. And I want you to hold on to that today because what you all just basically did is summed up the entire sermon. And I appreciate that. 
We're in a series where we're looking at the seven I am statements from the Gospel of John. And in this statement, part of what we're talking about today is that when we prepare to host people, what we're doing is we're actually giving them a little bit of a glimpse of heaven. I'm serious. We're giving people a glimpse of what eternity is when we prepare to host them. We're going to be talking about that today. We're going to be talking about heaven. We're going to be talking about dying. We're going to be talking about this thing that some of us right now is like, that was a hard U-turn from Martha Stewart, that we're now talking about death. But no matter how much we don't like to maybe think about it or talk about it, it's something that every single one of us, no matter who we are or what we believe, has to ask ourselves the question. If we think that there's something of a spirit and a soul in us, if there's the spark of the divine, what happens when your earthly body quits working? What do you believe in that? How do we think of that for people we love? How do we think about that in our faith? That's what this sixth of the seven I am statements from John is dealing with. Now, as we've said in this series, this is a series based upon Jesus making these seven I am statements, uh, and, and each of them is really building on uh, the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament, at the burning bush, God sa- uh, Moses says to God, how am I to say who you are? And God gives this great phrase that we translate as Yahweh, uh, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you, which is all kind of like powerful and big. It's also like, I don't really know what that means. I am that I am. It's like, okay. Uh, and so what these statements are, they have two purposes. Every time in the gospel of John, Jesus makes an I am statement. He's doing two things. He's first off saying, I am the I am. I am divinity. He's phrasing this in a certain way. I'm not your buddy. I'm not your friend. I'm not your advice giver. I'm not your therapist. I'm not your advisor. I am God. I'm not a really good teacher. I am God. He's saying that every time. I am, but then he gives these details. This is the second thing he does. Uh, I am the good shepherd. It gives you this insight into the great I am. I am that I am. I'm the good shepherd. What does that mean about God? What does it mean about us? Uh, I am the light of the world. What does that tell us about the nature of God? And then how do we live in that ourselves? And today in the sixth of these seven phrases, we have the statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, before we read the scripture passage, I need to set the context of what's going on here because this phrase, this I am statement takes place at a very specific moment that you have to understand. It takes place just after the Last Supper, just before Jesus is arrested on the Mount of Olives. It takes place on Monday, Thursday in Holy Week, okay? It's from John 14. And, and, and what takes place in the moments before this, the disciples are really confused. This is a very disorienting moment for the disciples. Because for three years they've been with Jesus, they've seen his ministry grow. On Palm Sunday, Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the Passover. The crowds are there cheering. The movement is going viral uh, of what they've given their lives to. But all of a sudden at the Passover meal, Jesus starts talking about his body being broken. He starts talking about his blood being shed. The message starts changing. And all of a sudden he starts talking about how one of them is going to betray him. And they look around and Judas is leaving the room. What's going on in the middle of this? And then further on in the Gospel of John, after they eat their meal, after Judas is left to betray them, Jesus does something else that's disorienting to them. He takes out a bowl and then washes each of their feet. And it says that they're uncomfortable with it. It says Peter almost protests the idea that their teacher, their rabbi, would serve them in this menial of ways. 
And then lastly, right before this passage, Jesus, after washing their feet, says that he's leaving them. He's Emmanuel, God with us. For three years, they've been with Jesus. And all of a sudden, he's saying, I'm leaving you. Where I am going, you cannot go. I'm going ahead of you. Now, we know he's talking about his crucifixion and resurrection. But you've got to imagine for the disciples, like, what is happening right now? And to end that discomfort, into that disorientation, is where John 14 begins with verse 1. This is what the word says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray no matter who we are, how we gather today, what hopes, what doubts, what beliefs, what questions, that we would all experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are a number of different ways you can approach this. There's a number of different ways that pastors and churches can approach this this I am statement. There's a number of different ways through the centuries the church has approached this statement. And I want to say from the beginning that there is a temptation, and I understand this temptation, to approach this from the lens of religion. It's tempting for all of us as human beings to approach it from the lens of religion. Because what religion wants to do is go, that's it, we got the system, we understand it now. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. So this is what we got to do. We got to get Jesus in front of people. We got to get people in front of Jesus because no matter how it goes, no matter what they think, this is the only way. We got the system now for how it all works. And that's something as human beings we love to kind of sense an understanding of how this all operates. Now I want you to know today, I believe every single word of this is literally true. Jesus is the way, not a way, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. But what does that mean? Is religion the right answer to that? Okay, now we understand how it works. Now we understand what we got to do. Now we understand how, what God's going to do. We have an understanding of this system of salvation. What makes Jesus unique? Is Jesus creating a better religion than other religions that exist in the world to tell us how many rules to follow, to tell us how good we can be, to clear some spiritual hurdle so we're qualified for heaven? Or is Jesus doing something different? Christianity at its core is not a religion. Religions teach us what we have to do to qualify to be good enough to go to heaven. Jesus is a celebration of grace and love. 
We follow one who dispenses an economy of grace into our lives and to this world. And I want you to know that there are a lot of smart people in this room. There are a lot of really bright, good people in this room. But I'm not certain any of us are qualified to be an expert about how the grace of God applies to the life of someone else. And not only do I not think that's what we're supposed to do, the Bible says we're not supposed to do it. Take this as an example. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, the last words Jesus says to the disciples, he's crucified, he's resurrected, he's starting to ascend to heaven. The last words Jesus says to the disciples as he's, as he's going to heaven. Last words are important. When you're leaving the house and your kids are there, you're, you know, someone's there, you're like, hey, don't forget to do this. Your last words, they mean something. You want people to remember. It's like, remember this. Acts 1, this is Jesus' last words. So when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the last thing he says. Now, our church is blessed with a lot of good attorneys. We have a lot of attorneys at this church, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a very good thing. <laughs> I want to go on record as saying it's a very good thing. And we're really glad all of you are here. You catch the details that some of us miss more easily than others. I am not one of those bright attorneys, but I've watched law shows enough on TV <laughs> that I basically am. <laughs> I've watched Grey's Anatomy too, which basically means I'm a surgeon as well. <laughs> I can say intubate them with the best of them. I don't actually know what that means. <laughs> but I know when things are bad, you intubate them. So, <laughs> now I'm not an attorney, but I'm fairly certain this is true. And Rhonda, you are uh, an attorney, uh, a, a bright and gifted attorney. Uh, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe in any kind of court, Mike Clatt, you can, you can tell me if this is true. You're not allowed to be both a witness and a judge in the same trial, are you? Can you do that? Okay, my attorney, can you do that, Mike? No. So my attorneys have advised me that this is true, and this is accurate, what I'm about to say. You cannot be both a witness and a judge. It's not possible. You're not allowed to. You cannot jump off the witness stand telling people what you've seen and jump onto the judge's bench and put them aside. Now, now let me tell you what happens. And Jesus is very clear. He says, you don't have authority. The Father has authority, is what he says here. And you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I am giving you the authority to pronounce judgment on Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He doesn't do that. I think that's intentional. I think his last words are really important, and yet the church keeps giving to this temptation of going, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're in, you're out, you're out, you're in, you're definitely out. I didn't point to anyone specific over here, I want you to know. <laughs> Just sort of making a random thing, just to make you feel better, you're definitely in. Like, however it works. And yet, because we love religion and systems, we love to jump to that really quick. Oh, nobody comes to the Father except through me. 
Jesus doesn't come to introduce a religious system telling us what to do. Jesus introduces a system where through grace, we celebrate and witness to what God has done to the amazing grace of God in our lives, where we get to share, to be witnesses to this good news that God has in our lives come in and said to you and said to me, I am liberating you from having to be good enough. I am liberating you first off from a wishy-washy spirituality that can't handle justice. And I'm liberating you from religious systems that will cause you anxiety and fear your entire life. When we claim faith in Jesus Christ, Paul writes, his righteousness is credited to us. It is a gift given by God. And so the only way people get to the Father is through Jesus, who is an agent of grace, and the means of grace are greater than what you and I can comprehend. And the mystery of that should be good news to us. But we get to witness to it in our lives. I try to be a good person. I do, I'm being serious here. I try to be a good person. I try to be a good pastor, a good husband, a good friend, a good dad, a good brother, a good son. But the older I get, the more convinced I am that when I die, I am not claiming any of that as being worthy of getting into the presence of God for eternity. I am calling on the righteousness of Jesus to cover me. And I get to share and you get to share that love story with other people. We're witnesses. And witnesses to what? We're witnesses to the fact that God loves us so much that heaven is the place where he goes before us to do the work of preparation, to prepare a place for you. Isn't it amazing when you think about in your own life and you think about death or when you think about people you've lost that they're not just cast into heaven. We're not angels bouncing around on clouds with harps, you know, with little wings. And we're not shoved into this sort of mass uh, dorm room. It says that there's a room with our names and a place has been prepared for you. Your name is known. Just like we prepare to host people in our host. What do they like? What do they, what do they not like? What can they eat? What can they not eat? How do we prepare for them specifically? The creator of the universe is preparing a place for you. There is a spot reserved for you at the banquet table for no one else than you. And why does he do that? You've already answered this. Why do we prepare? To tell people what? They're loved to tell people that they belong, to tell people that they're desired, to tell people that they're included. What makes heaven heaven is that in this earth, we've got all this stuff that can make us feel like we're somebody and we've got all this stuff that makes us feel like our worth is taken away. We deal with guilt, we deal with shame, we deal with what other people think of us, we deal with how we measure up to others. We deal with all of this stuff that we're constantly trying to prove ourselves. And heaven is the place where Jesus just says to us, all of you is seen, all of you is welcome, all of you is loved. All of that earthly stuff that gives you value and takes away from your value and makes you feel insignificant, all of it melts away. You are welcome. And you know it. For you and those whom you love, we were meant for that meaning. He's telling 
telling us what makes heaven heaven, what makes paradise paradise. And I hope that gives you comfort today. I hope it gives comfort to people of the faith that you've known who have passed on, that all of the stuff that may have plagued them in life, it's melted away. It's gone. It has been providential for me that this has been a scripture passage that is the first one that I've preached since I lost a really good friend. And that Texas and the United States, we lost a really gifted pastor. Some of you may have read on the news and heard about the loss of Brian Dunnigan. Brian was um, the senior pastor of Highland Park Presbyterian Church in Dallas. Um, Brian was a charismatic leader. He was a, a gifted preacher. He was somebody that Highland Park had grown under his leadership. It had started other churches under his leadership. It had become much more outwardly facing under his leadership. Uh, we had Gary Haugen from International Justice Mission with us last week. Highland Park, for example, is one of the largest single organizations now contributing to IJM on an annual basis. Brian, this church flourished under Brian. And for 20 years, he's been one of my best friends. Brian and I first met uh, 19 years ago in Atlanta. I was an associate pastor at a church called North Avenue Presbyterian Church. Some of you know I worked with college students and our ministry had started growing and it started growing pretty quickly, which doesn't happen all the time and it certainly didn't happen um, uh, in, in a lot of mainline churches. And, and um, as it grew, there were people from the outside that paid attention to that. And so I knew I was a really big deal uh, of making that happen. And, um, and, and as it was growing, after about a year of it, there were some people who came to me and was like, hey, have you met the new young adult guy at Peachtree Presbyterian just up the, up the road from, from us? And I was like, no. And they're like, he's doing young adult work too. I'm like, yeah, but I'm kind of a big deal. And I don't really, like, you know, you should know him and everything. I'm like, well, he might need to take some notes on how this works. But, you know, if you guys want to set up a coffee or whatever. And I'll never forget being there, knowing I was a big deal, uh, seeing this college ministry. And then this guy walks in. And I didn't like him from the moment I saw him. <laughs> like, seriously, it looks like that is an advertisement for some product that he's selling. But Brian walked in and I'm like, oh, well, okay. But he's probably not very personable. Uh, and then he comes up and he's this really nice guy. And I'm like, well, he's probably not very smart. Uh, and he, I started talking about our journey, and he's like, I went to um, a school on the West Coast. And I'm like, what school on the West Coast? He's like, Stanford. And you're like, dang it. Um, <laughs> I went to Stanford, and, uh, and then at Stanford, I'm like, well, he's probably not very athletic then. Uh, so what did you do at Stanford? He played on the lacrosse team uh, at Stanford. And not only did he play on the lacrosse team, I was like, well, there's places on the bench for everyone, and everyone's included. Uh, <laughs> turned out his senior year, they were the runners up to the national championship, and he was the leading scorer on the team. Um, and he was funny and uh, loved Jesus. And so I hated him from the moment I uh, first met him and left there feeling like amazingly insecure. Uh, but, but over the years, Brian and I developed a really good friendship. Uh, we learned a lot from each other. We both were a part of kind of growing ministries with younger people. Uh, I learned a lot from him. We prayed for each other. We hung out together a lot in Atlanta. Uh, and then we started discerning these calls to Texas together. Months before any of you knew who I 
am, or heard my name, Brian Dunnigan was one of the only people that I was talking with and praying with about this church in Austin, Texas. And did God want me here? And he was praying for this church by name and praying for me and my family by name. And the cool part was that he was in the exact same moment discerning a call to Highland Park Prez in Dallas. And so we were talking about this move to Texas together and, uh, and praying for Highland Park and praying for him. And we got here. He started a few months after I started here at Covenant. We've grown closer through the time we were in Texas. Um, he's come and spent time here in Austin. I've gone up and spent time with he and his wife, Allie, and their three kids. Um, we're going on retreats together. Um, we were actually planning this spring to do a pulpit swap. I was going to go preach at Highland Park. Brian was going to come here to preach. We're in a pastor's cohort group together. This is one of my best friends, and so it was stunning. On Thursday morning, October 26th, when I got a phone call at 8 a.m. telling me that Brian had died. With no warning signs. Gone to bed on Wednesday night, lay down next to his wife, Allie, three elementary school-age kids down the hall, and he didn't wake up. And there's no reason for that. It, is, it has been... It has been hard to process. No matter how much you don't want to talk about this stuff, death, it comes for us all. No one escapes it. You don't hide from it by acting like it's not there. Sometimes at times, and I know you all know this in your own stories, that the tragedy of which just doesn't make sense. And no religion and no spirituality teaches you how to avoid this heartache, this brokenness. If you are someone who prays and believes prayer makes a difference, and I hope that most of us are, I would ask you to be praying for Allie Dunnigan and for their three children as they're about to go into the first Thanksgiving having lost their dad and their husband with no warning just a couple of weeks ago. And if you are someone who prays, and I'd ask you to pray for Highland Park Presbyterian Church. It's an amazing congregation that is reeling right now. Nothing takes away the pain and the heartache and the tragedy. Nothing takes away the loss. It's hard for me to have that image come up because this was one of my best friends. And I miss him very much. But it has been comforting me in the midst of that tragedy to sit with this scripture this week because I intellectually believe and know that Brian's in heaven. Not because he went to Stanford, not because he was obnoxiously handsome, not because of his charisma, not because of his leadership, not because of the fruit, the amazing fruit of his ministry. I knew he was going to heaven because he knew he was in need of grace, something more than himself, and he had called upon the name of Jesus, and the righteousness of Jesus was covering him. That was his story, his hope. But what has given me comfort this week, and what may give you comfort for yourself and for those whom you love is the idea that when he breathed his last, his name was known, was spoken. That there was a place for him, a room with his name on the door prepared for him. There was a spot at the banquet table where he belonged that had been saved for no one but him because Jesus had gone before him, before you, before those whom we love to prepare a place that says you belong. 
that strips away all of the stuff this world puts at us of what gives us worth and what makes us feel shameful and guilty. All of it is taken away and we are overwhelmed with the knowledge that we are loved, welcomed, included, valued, and desired. And to know that truth for him gives me comfort in these days. So when you are preparing to host this week, you are giving people a glimpse of eternity. This is good news at the heart of this I am statement. And my prayer for each and every one of you today is that it's not just good news, but it's your good news. That your soul knows its worth. This day, this week, and always. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that your love would overwhelm us all in the midst of this broken world. That we're named, known, claimed, loved beyond what we can imagine. We pray this truth would settle deep within us this day and always. For we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen.